Hey everybody, my name is Alex and this is Lunchbox Radio Rewind. Before we get started though, I know I introduced this as a like video podcast idea, but I'm going to put that on hold because the video podcasts actually only go out through Spotify and it's really hard for me to tell if you like them or not because they don't show on um they don't show on my back end on my phone. So I really only ever know if somebody likes it when I go to record said video. So I'm going to give that a little bit more time in the oven and think through it better. But on that note, I am going to give you guys a lunchbox rewind. And that is what is going to happen right now. And also thank you for watching, watching slash listening to the Cowboy Bebop canceled um, Sunday edition. That was a lot of fun to do. But on that note, um, the thing I want to talk about this week on a Rewind, which if you haven't seen that trailer or heard that trailer, you can go listen to it or watch it um, wherever you're listening to this podcast or on Spotify where the video is. And what I want to do here is I want to revisit, sh- I want to revisit shows because I don't know if you've noticed, but on the main show, I haven't been... I very rarely revisit shows unless it's like a shonen action thing. And that's because I want to keep giving you guys new stuff about shows, about shows that maybe you haven't seen. But in this case, I want to revisit shows because I think that they're important. Or like I said on the trailer, I rewatch stuff all the time. And removed from the first time you watch something, the second, third, and on down the line, you see more in the show every time you watch it. And what I want to talk about this week is a little show called Jormungans. And if you haven't heard the original episode of about Jormungand, you can go watch it in the, um, you can go not watch it, go listen to it in the feed. It's probably pretty far down. Um, but on that note, without further ado, this is Lunchbox Radio Rewind. Jormungan. Now, before I jump into the show, first I want to give a spoiler warning up front because this show is an action show that wraps that it has a mystery at the core of it. And if you haven't seen the show, I encourage you to go see it. It's um I picked I actually picked up the DVDs um or the DVD Blu-ray combo pack, but you can you can find it on Crunchyroll. Um, you can find it on Funim- Funimation, actually, dubbed, which is great, because it's got a lot to follow, and a lot of, like, technical crap, eventually. But, the long... So, spoiler alert for Jormungan, if you've never seen it, go watch it, and come back and listen to this, or listen to the original podcast that I released on Jormungan, which was a long time ago, like, a couple years ago. But, 
the really interesting thing about rewatching Jormungand is because you know the end of it, you pay attention more to little moments in the show. Like, not super early in the show, but in the first season, definitely. There's a moment when they do a plane drop off. And it's really significant and they call it out. Now, if you know anything about how Jormungand ends, you know that that's a thing that will be a technical impossibility (laughs) by the end of this show. Because... And they they bury the lead with this, but they make Coco the main, like, the... Not the main character, but the main female lead of this show. Um, very philosophical about what she does because she's an international arms dealer who is... If you don't know anything about arms dealing, A, I, I would encourage you to go watch... Um, uh, a little movie with Jonah Hill in it. I forget who his co-star's name, but it's called War Dogs. And it's it's about these two guys who essentially start dealing arms and it gets real sketchy really quickly and eventually they like get entangled with some real fuck-ups. And the long and short of it is, is like it's a pretty universal notion that like arms dealers are a necessary evil. That no one would admit to buying from straight up people who buy and sell goddamn weapons of destruction. But everybody, every country uses them. And everybody uses them. And the people, the people who tend to associate with them are not necessarily the most peaceful loving people. But throughout the show, there's this long running conversation about... Humanity's relationship to weapons and what it means. And by the end of the show, you have Coco revealing that she, the whole thing makes her fucking sick. And it's a, real, it's a really great portrayal of someone who was kind of... Who's born very much outside of the box because you find out at some point that... Their father owns, quote-unquote, a shipping company, like a worldwide shipping company. And that means that they, ha- they have grown up in a world of, where they are kind of permanently international. They, have, they both did a speech that Casper, her, um, I believe her older brother, gives at some point, And he says... Like, I've got passports from basically every country in the world. I don't really have a home. I, but, but in Casper's case, he likes what he does. Like, he, he's good at selling weapons, and he is... And he's, and he's happy to do it. The, the great speech at the end where Coco launches her last rocket, which will create this kind of mesh network over the entire Earth that locks the sky from being of any use. Meaning, if you've ever been on a plane, um, to the navigation system that you can actually access. You can actually see your route. And those are pretty carefully like planned and sought after to be the most efficient in terms of gasoline and in terms of safety and all this other stuff. That's why if you've ever been like, rain delayed and it doesn't seem like it's raining that much it's because it's not raining that much down on the earth but it might be raining way harder when you're like 300 miles up in a steel tube with wings but coco's like idea is essentially to remove the sky as a viable option to transport um to transport not just weapons but anything because the problem in her mind and she's not at least in my opinion she's not super wrong is that what makes countries so violent and and what makes the world so violent is that someone can make a gun in Russia and it can wind up on the streets in say New York City and that's very true uh, now, there are certainly gun, uh, plenty of gun makers in each country, and they can deal inside of their own country, 
But the other thing that Coco kind of half mentions in the show, unfortunately drops, although it's pretty interesting, is towards the middle half of the second season, she gets, even the main cast notices, like, she's really aggressive and she's making some really big moves that have nothing to do with what we do as a, like, our job. What the fuck is happening? And this is before she told the main character, Jonah, who I'll get to in a second, and the rest of the cast. And one of the things she does is she invests in micro in like a, a micro-machine manufacturer. Not like the um, transforming robot toys. Like actual like microscopic little robots. And her idea at that point becomes more than just the sky. It becomes also, like, she essentially wants to take the world back a hundred years and make everybody hyper-local. Because by doing that, you don't just make people hyper-local. You make the violence they do on each other hyper-local. Because if you can't... If your violence can't... If, if violence can't leave any one country then there'll be much, much, much less of it because they, like, you won't be able to, like, get a gun in the mail from America in, like, say, anywhere, like, anywhere in the world. It will be technically impossible. And so that's her goal. But the the most interesting part of this show is not necessarily Coco, although she is interesting. The most interesting part of this show is the main character, Jonah, who is a child soldier, who is, who, in like a moment of desperation, basically kills an entire military base operation. And you're never quite told what country it's for, but it's very clear that he is like... Southeastern Asian, I think. Uh, because he's he's really tan. He has red eyes and white hair, which makes very little sense for how tan he is. But it's, it's suggested that he is unique among child soldiers because he just straight up, like, narcs his entire base. And at that point, and they show this in a pretty good, um, although a little cheesily voice acted, um flashback episode where he just takes out the entire base and then he encounters Casper who is A, responsible for selling the guns that killed his parents which in turn means that he became a child soldier um, and B, he was the person supplying the weapons to this military base that was essentially using orphans to and this was a practice that actually happened uh, using orphans to walk deserted um, landmine zones. And the thing that triggered him to go after the entire you go after the entire base and kill them all was a, a close friend of his was just blown up by a landmine. And he was like, Oh, had enough of this. You two hide in that closet. I'm gonna go kill everybody here. And so he has this he had this relationship with not only weapons, but the world at large that is pretty unstable, pretty confused, and pretty hostile in a way. And in this flashback, in this flashback um, sequence, Casper uh, takes the other orphans and it's part of like a negotiation deal where he's he negotiates with Jonah, or Jonathan Marr, his full name, um, that the orphans will be placed in a nice, safe country, which ends up being Japan, and they'll be allowed to go through with a normal life. The three that are left alive. And in return, Jonah simply had to work for a bodyguard, as a bodyguard for Coco, with Coco's crew. And Coco's crew is kind of explored... Uh, pretty thoroughly throughout most of the first season. And you find out that, like, 
Lush, who is like the who who's the classic fuck up of this group, was a police sniper who was in charge of taking out um terrorists and bad guys, and you find out that um Balmet, who is kind of and probably the most other interesting thing about this story is that the, like, real badass characters, the characters who, like, keep you awake at night are not men. They are not scary nightmare men. They are all women. Um, the first one you meet is, um, Balmet. And there's, like, a, like, a version of Balmet in every single arms dealer crew who's, like, the main, like, the bodyguard nobody fucks with. Um... And Balmat is a former, like, Eastern European army, from a former Eastern European army family, where she, her entire unit was killed by a, um, by a soldier from the Chinese military, who you eventually meet, and you meet his, like, protege, and both of them, both of them die. Actually, Karen doesn't, um, but... the, like, guy who she's working under eventually dies. But Balmet, after surviving that attack, being the only survivor, was demoted to, like, a desk job. And that's when Coco picked her up. And one of the, like... It's played for laughs, but I don't think it's meant that way. There's a very non-cis, straight, white guy... Like re- under re- reading underneath all the things happening here, because it's very clear that Balmet is just a lesbian, um, and that like her and Coco are definitely in some variant of a relationship. Not only because they they deeply care for each other, but also because they Balmet is the necessary female bodyguard that, like, sleeps in the same room as Coco because, you know, she's an international arms dealer and people may sneak into her window to try and knife her in the neck. And so this entire time, like I said, they're dropping these little hints of what Coco's plan is. But the... And the really excellent thing is you don't pick up on what her plan is until... Right after, and until you've seen the show before. Because the show, the, the plan is such a monumental scale. It's, it's essentially, her plan is essentially a Minoski party particle scenario, which if you don't know what Minoski party particles are, they're from the Gundam universe. And if you've ever seen Gundam, you'll notice nobody uses guided weaponry ever. They use beam weaponry and, like, insane amounts of missiles, but there's no, tar- there's no, like, robotic targeting. That's because, and I'm not sure if it was somebody from Anaheim Electronics, but somebody at some point screwed up the atmosphere, like, an atmospheric experiment so hard that it released these things called Minoski particles. And they sh- just mess with all of the electronics of, like, guidance systems. So, like... You can lock on to a target and you can fire straight. Or you can, like, arc something. But you can't do something that's really complicated, like a robotic missile launch. And her plan is basically to do that, but with the entire Earth. Not just the entire... Just the entire Earth, not the entire galaxy. And what that means is launching a bunch of satellites, which she does under a pretext that's actually... Involves her brother's project, pet project, and then basically reprogramming, doing a combination of reprogramming them and releasing nanomachines into the atmosphere to stop plane na- navigation from being a capable thing. And and essentially, at first, and I think later she like it's, and I said this before, she wants to lock humanity out of the seas as well, but. They're going to start with locking humanity out of the sky. They're going to, as she says in the show, throw the sky back a hundred years and 
humanity will just lose its will lose its plain privileges for back for lack of a better word. And throughout the entire show, you meet these characters who like they give you they give you good reasons why Coco knows them. Like Dr. Manami Amada or Dr. Miami is a brilliant roboticist who like basically builds really complicated children's toys. But everything always gets repurposed for military use and she doesn't seem to care, at least on the surface surface. And they also tell you that she's like she's been friends with Coco since Coco was eighteen and you're led to believe that Coco is around it's like in her twenties. I think the old one of the oldest characters you meet is um Lem, who's on Coco's team, and he's like clearly in his fifties. He has that like nostalgic this like old soldier guy thing going on. And so Coco cooked up this point with Dr. Miami. And then she like clearly made a list of the kinds of people she would need. So she needs a like expert in in robotics and I forget who the, it's this blonde woman that that they like go kidnap from a military facility and then they also need like an expert in um like supercomputer nonsense and they kidnap her from Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> and then but the other thing is you much like in m- most of these like grim dark shows maybe with the exception of gangsta like gangsta didn't get gangsta didn't get a long enough time on the earth to like explore what gangsta is really about what like the entirety of that property if you want more of it you can go read up to chapter 65 the um author i believe has been battling lupus for a long time so chapters are fleeting um but the in most of these shows, there's an involvement of America in some way. And a lot of that is probably not all that wrong because America has been known by its own admission many times as the world police for a long time. And if you go watch um, Ghost in the Shell, if you haven't already, the original Ghost in the Shell movie, or even Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, they do this more. They refer to them as the American Empire. And they refer to them as, like, a big deal. They refer to America as a big deal. As, like, a big, problematic bunch of assholes. And, largely speaking, that's because America is really young. And America has not been kicking around, say, as long as Japan or most countries in Europe. And, especially from a Japanese perspective... Most people in Japan know America from the worst of the worst of tourists that they encounter. Because the bottom line is you don't really... You don't remember when you have a good experience as much as you remember when you have a bad experience. Especially when it comes to people. Um, I had a friend in high school who... said that her and her family, when she was in middle school... Went to Paris. And she said it was beautiful, but they had a really crummy time because nobody would, nobody would nice to them. And I just looked straight at her because, like, I remember going to Paris and I was like, fine. And I've been to Paris maybe three times. And I'm always fine. Because I understand that, like, Americans are seen as big, loud assholes. (laughs) And if you're acting like a normal American, you are, like, the loudest person in the room, the most demanding person in the room, your parents are jerks to other people because they don't, they don't get the same kind of service, A, because they're being jerks, but B, because of everybody who's been jerks before them, also affects a waiter's idea of, like, oh, crap. Some Americans at the other table. And, like, the, the easy ways to break from that, but most people don't think about that in the moment. And so that... A, that plus the kinds of, like, shit America's gotten up to in the world, like, m- 
declaring and making war and like fucking over other countries and all the and like Trump certainly Trump um shapes our standing in not just people's minds but the people who create things in other countries minds that's why oftentimes like America is like the essentially a variation of a bad guy in lots of shows and that's shown in this because you have although Britain doesn't super fare well in this either um you have a character who who's named Scarecrow who shows up pretty early and he's just like he's like the kind of CIA agent who never goes back to the office because nothing ever goes well enough for him to have a good report so he just stays in the wind until he can get more his his greasy grippers and more money and the show portrays him as that portrays him as just like this guy who his saving grace is he can like sniff out fucked up illegal money and get his once again his greasy grippers on it and make it the US's instead of whoever's it was and then you have um, you have George Black, um, possibly the best version of evil anime Dilbert, which I find just it's just hilarious. He is he is imagine like what an anime version of Dilbert would look like, and now just make him just the most twisted asshole, <laughs> and that's him. Um, you have, uh, you have other characters, like you have, um, I forget, you have Chocolate, who is, who seems like she's, she seems like she's smart enough to know what side she should be on, but also ditzy enough to not get it right ever. <laughs> and so you have that faction, you have, it's just about any, and there's, like, they make it really clear, like, there are people out to kill Coco. And her entire crew, if necessary. So, with, with not just the first episode, but every episode previous. And then they do a really interesting thing. Uh, like I said in the beginning of this episode, there's an episode pretty early on that involves actually um, a Doctors Without Borders equivalent. Um, that is an air delivery. That inevitably goes south in a bunch of ways and like Coco just like these guys trying to kill fucking doctors that's not cool end these motherfuckers and they do but other than that with the exception of a show off moment towards the after she launches her last rocket into into space she almost she, she never travels internationally on a plane it's always this big, lumbering cargo ship thing that, like, they basically live on. They basically live at sea often. Or they stay in, like, a hotel, a nondescript, but okay hotel. Or, okay, they can find whatever fucked up war zone they're in. Although, a couple of t- towards the end of the show, they actually end up in Japan, um, which is... So, if I had to pick a, like, Grimdark show that has a season in Japan that does it the best, it would probably be Black Lagoon. Because Black Lagoon is the most, like, technically viable. Ghost in the Shell is a different thing. It's, like, the police versus bad guys, and it makes sense. But, by and large, Japan really fucking peaceful in reality. And also, Ghost in the Shell is, like, removed from reality by, like, a lot of time. It's, like, in, like, 45 years kind of time. And it also often Ghost in the Shell's plots have very little to do with violence. Like, there's violent spurts, but not that much. And in... In, um, Black Lagoon, they get there as, like, a negotiation scenario between the Yakuza and the Russian mob. Where Rock is hired as a translator for the Russian mob, and Revy goes along as just his bodyguard. Like, not to protect anybody else there, but to protect him. Because Balanka's goons do not really care about him at all. And it's very clear, and 
I think it's Dutch. He's like, yeah, Rebbe, you're going too because I don't, I don't fucking trust this. Berlanka has like set this city on fire like every other week at this point. I trust that she's not going to not set Tokyo on fire. So I'm sending you with Rock because Rock is useful and you can protect him and both of you can live through this. And they do, Jeff, barely. But what that, what that show does really well is it hides the violence from the rest of the country. And that's not really a thing that feels like it's being done as much in Jormungand. Like, in, in, um, in the, um, by the way, spoilers for Black Lagoon. If you haven't seen Black Lagoon, you should, you should see that show. It's worth it. Um, but in the, like, Tokyo episode of Black Lagoon, the violence is always at night in areas where, like, the only people there are gangsters and assholes. <laughs> And it's not, they make a big deal out of the moments when that violence bleeds out into the rest of the world. Um, like, they make a big deal of, like, the Yakuza daughter, like, taking the helm of the Yakuza clan when her father dies. Because that's not a thing she was ever supposed to do. And she had been a high school student up until that point. They make this kind of great... The great scene where... These kids are playing like... A playing like gangster in a park. And they've got fake, they've got very clearly like fake toy guns. And they're like, bang, 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 bang. And Rebby's just like, that's not, that's not how you die. And she's like, shoot it at me. And she like shows them and it's this very clear difference and it's this very dark clear difference and by the end of that um season it's like her and rock show up to that same park and the kids are like oh gangsta lady show us something else and she just whips out her actual gun shoots the can off the fence post and they like get on a plane and fucking leave um but the japan i think the japan part of Jormungand is probably the weakest because it's so it's like they're making lots of leaps like they have there's a section where they have a straight up full on gangster style moving car chase shootout in the Aquabond which is a tunnel that goes under a big lake and it's just like it's you guys are allowed to leave the fucking country after this? Like, we're not also, like... The JSF was not also on your tail? <laughs> and they explain it away, and it's satisfactory. It just feels... feels really weird. <laughs> feels really weird. But by the end of the show, Coco has been, like... Coco's main bodyguard is actually Jonah. Like... Belmet is the person who sleeps in who sleeps in the same room as her at night, but Coco travels with Jonah and it's suggested that Jonah is like her way back once she executes her plan. Once she like stops the world from much of its international arm dealing, her way back is this kid she took in who has a real problem with fucking violence. Even though it's it's the thing he staked his life on. And the long and short of it is you start to see Jonah have these interactions with the rest of the world as like a as like a as a, as a kid who was a child soldier and who is a child soldier but also is a kid and he like he, the big part about the Japanese like, season, is he's really excited to go to Japan, A, because that's where the, his friends were placed in school. And Casper, straight up, who Jonah, like, vehemently hates and tries to murder early on in the show. And Casper, seemingly jokingly at first, but entirely seriously, is like, ah, Paquita, who's his, like, Balmet equivalent, who's a, like, 
this like badass female former military chick. It it's like restraining him, and she's like, no, no. And she called him Mishka because she thinks of him as a bear cub because she's actually pretty fond of him. You find out by the end of the show. She's like, now, now, Mishka, that, that's not how you say hello, is it? And Casper, like, casually, but in a fully serious way, says, like, I'm sure Jonah, like, Jonah is just saying hello. I'm sure if he wanted to kill me, I'd be dead right now. <laughs> and you find out later that that's less of a joke than he, than he probably intended because... He just, uh, like, he looks at Jonah in the, like, final episodes, actually in the second to last episode, and says, like, dude, you don't, you don't have to call me mister, you don't have to use any honorific, none of that shit. Like, as far as I'm concerned, we're square, we're equals, I will, I will never look down on you, I think, I think what you see in the world is real, and I... Don't agree, but I'm not going to heckle you for seeing that in the world. And he gives him, like, like his, his international passport and, like, these bank papers that basically mean he is, a, like, probably, he's probably 18 to 20 in that, at that point, And Coco is probably in her early 30s. Um, and he just gives him a, like, a banking info and like traveling papers and he's like don't lose this even with support even with giving over like ha supporting ha halfway the like kid those kids of the friends of yours in japan you're pretty rich you've made a lot of money and you do remarkably little with that money so you're pretty well off and by the end of the show, Jonah's essentially presented with a trolley problem. Because he finds out about Coco's plan, and his first thought is not good. Arms will, like, like people will be less violent. It's how many people will die because Coco is essentially turning off the sky. Like, how many planes will just drop to the earth and people will die. And Coco very nonchalantly calls up Dr. Miami and gets, a, like, text Dr. Miami and gets an answer of 700,000. And I don't think that the show is being completely honest in its, like, perceptions of humanity, but I think the show is trying to have a conversation about evil, about choosing evil, and what it means to choose evil, and what it means to live with the evil you've chosen. Because in that time, massive amounts of people have died if the world has gotten more violent because people are dumbasses. They in in this show, there's like a there's a, there's a scene um really like in the third to last episode I think where Jonah overhears Casper talking to um after he leaves Coco's like, team and goes and works for Casper because the only thing he really knows how to do to support himself. And Casper gladly is like, yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I figured this was, this was coming. Go for it. Like, you're more than welcome, kid. You're really talented. I'd be happy to have you. And Casper, and him continuing to be in the, ar like, in arms dealing, lets him see the world as it's just they, they say the phrase, it's cooking nice and hot. And they're really not wrong. Like, the world that they portray in, um, in, by the end of that show is, like, a terrorist blew up Big Ben. Like, that kind of serious shit. And Jonah makes the choice. And I, I went and found the manga just because I was curious. I was curious if the manga author continued with this thing and like showed them continuing to exist in this world where the sky is inaccessible to humankind um but he he just ends it there but what he said was really interesting is he said like i wanted it to end up being jonah and coco's choice to do this 
I wanted to like make an extreme thing. And I, when he said that, I'm I'm not entirely sure that he had this storytelling shape in his head of Jonah having of Jonah and Coco making a choice to turn off the sky to like kill seven hundred thousand people, but also stop arms dealing via the air. I'm pretty sure he just wanted like to create a tough, like real human complex choice, and I think he did that really well. Like I said, does the show have a dishonesty to it? Probably. But what I like, what I really appreciated it for is, it's like, it's look at violence. And it's like, it's perspective on, like, that I've seen, I think in like episode six of the first season, where they're walking through this town and Coco has just been like, had a real assassination attempt on her life. And they're talking about, like, guns and the arms trade and she says pretty frankly like do you know what the single biggest population holder of weapons is, of guns is and he's like I don't know the military and she's like no everyday people civilians you know the military owns a fraction civilians own about 60% and then there's other like did, and of course I didn't check up on this but and then there's like civilians own the largest share overall they own the most of the pie and it if you've ever been to America or like seen much about America that's pretty easily believable and she just says like give somebody a gun and it's like this undeserved courage and they'll find themselves doing things they never thought they could. And if, once again, if you've seen the rest of the show, you know that that's part of her reasoning for eliminating the sky and the transport route. Ultimately. And by the end of the show, what she says is she says, what do you think will happen to people? I think she said this after. Um, I know she said that before she like hit the button and turned it on. But she's like, what do you think will happen when the sky gets, when the sky is lost? When someone removes humanity's privilege to move freely through the skies? And she says, I don't think that people will be as violent anymore. Because there'll have been a real consequence to that violence that is real, that is palpable, that is on everyone. I think that that's an interesting idea. I don't think it's a... I don't think it's a totally viable idea because people are unpredictable. But I think it's an interesting concept to, like, say that... like, And she, and she said as much. She said, like, the only person who could have punished people for this is someone who knows exactly how the system works. And she does know exactly how the system works. And so what she generally doing is she's playing judge, jury, and executioner on the entire world for its bad behavior around violence. And it, it's it's a really interesting it, what makes it such an interesting rewind episode rewatch is that once you've seen it once that sentiment is so clear it's like clear the bell the entire time you're watching this you kind of see in every character like these all these characters are pretty violent but they all have lines that they draw and they all they all function under an honor code they all function under this intense honor code not just to Coco but in their daily lives like there's a scene, and this is probably where I'll wrap it up. There's a scene where um, <laughs> dealing with these like very dumbass American PMC assholes, and Jonah driving in the car with Lem, and Lem is like is, is one of the oldest members of Coco's crew, time wise and age wise. And he said, "You know, there's only two P 
people are on the CIA blacklist on, on Coco's crew. One of them is Coco. The other is Wiley. And Wiley is this explosion, is this explosion expert. And they show you this... Um, the whole episode, the whole part of that episode is this flashback to how Lem met Wiley and, like, what Wiley does. Like, actually does. Because to that point, you it's not super highlighted. And then after that point, it... it, it Though the preceding, I think the preceding episodes are like, oh, he he's really good at explosions and he's a real piece of work. But when the the like PMCs who are trying to take their who are trying to take their wares send over this random trucker who they picked up off the road, just wired to high heavens to blow to blow them sky high. Wiley's like, these guys are piece of shit, huh? I mean, I'm not worried. I'm gonna rewire it, and it's gonna be fine. They're still gonna die, but now I know they deserve it. <laughs> and they do a good job of making these guys clearly not good people, but ha- but people who have morals and have like a a like, moral code that they follow. And the... The best shows do that, and the best shows... The best of these, like, grimdark shows, things like, um... Things like Jormungand, things like, um, Black Lagoon, things like Hakata Ramen... Things like, um, what's it, Gangsta, do their best not to make a judgment on the person, but to make a judgment on their actions. So, in, um, I talk about, um, Gangsta because even though that show is terrible, it is, like, very close to my heart because it's an amazing portrayal of a deaf character in anime. There's a character in that show called named Alex, and she is just a prostitute. For a for the in the very first episode, she's working for a pimp, but after that first episode, she's just a freewheeling independent prostitute. And the show makes no judgment on her at all. In fact, it goes out of its way to say like this: this poor woman is like deeply abused in some very specific ways and it's fucked like controlled with drugs kind of thing which is a thing that pimps do to prostitutes if you were wondering um but the I think that's key to making a show watchable and if you want a really modern version of this you, um if you haven't seen Tokyo Revengers that's a great <laughs> a great fucking show but it's also a show where, with the exception of one character who is just the bad guy, all the characters are like these like street punks who society casts aside and like thinks are bad, even evil in society, but they're all just like fun, nice people, but nobody ever gave them a chance. And it... That show is different because it's kids. And it, all these shows are different from each other because they're all... They're all... Have different circumstances. Like, for example, Hakata Ramen, the main character pretty early on, just straight up goes to a strip club. But they don't... They don't, they don't pass judgment on it. And that's probably my favorite thing about Jormungand. Is that... They never feel like they're passing judgment on the characters. The only time <laughs> when there's serious judgment passed on a character is, um, I forget her, the character's name. Oh, Hex. There's a, there's a PMC who's named Hex who works for the CIA. And she is like oversexual. She's like intentionally hypersexualized. She's intentionally hyper violent and she's like aggressive as all shit. 
She's like violent to people to like people on her own side, and it it's made very clear like she's a problem, and like eventually, um, George Black is forced to just be like, no, you're not killing a kid. Like I, George Black has this moment like, shit, I'm a piece of shit, but I'm not gonna kill a kid. Like, it, and mostly that's, um, a character who dies in the, I believe in the second or late in the first season of, I think in the first season of the show, that's the, like, finale moment of, is, is our death and everything surrounding that. But, he's just like, you're really gonna let this chick fucking off a kid to throw, to throw somebody who, by the way, you want to succeed on some level. Just throw her off kilter? That seems super safe. And like a terrible idea. And like for the rest of the <laughs> Whenever George Black like encountered Jonah, he's like, Jonah, go buy stuff from the duty free. <laughs> On the CIA tab, he also like, they, they straight up meet, they meet in the five guys in the airport, which is like just chef kiss of like bunch of arm dealers eat meat. CIA overlord evil anime Dilbert in a Five Guys is a thing, is a sentence that is true. Um, but he's like, he's like, fuck you guys for like ordering on CIA tab. But also, Jonah, order anything you want. Everything's great. It's it, it's fine. I don't work. I don't care. And it's this. In, in that moment, you see that like, like even George Black is. Like, he, he's a real son of a bitch, but he's... He, they, they make sure that none of the people who are not the bad guys are so, like, cartoonishly evil that they don't seem like people. They, really, the only one they do that with is Hex. And, the, and they take you through Hex's backstory, and they give you the reasons why she's, like, a... A, a badass, but B, like, a totally, like, off-the-rails psycho. And it's because of a kind of, like, societal, chauvinistic assholery, basically. And this, this show is, this show is, before it was fashion, truly fashionable, critical of the things that, like, are now super popular to be critical of. It's critical of violence for violence's sake. It's critical of like people who don't play by who don't play by the rules because they don't have to. It's critical it's certainly critical of men. It's like deeply fucked up critical of men. The the idea it's pretty clear that like Coco is a delight to deal with, but like nobody Everybody does business with Casper, but nobody likes him. <laughs> and when you have enough interaction with him, you um you kind of see why. Like he's he's like a snake charmer. He's like an oily snake charmer. It's very weird. The other then the last thing I'll actually say is the other super interesting thing is like I said before, they were born at sea on a cargo ship and they both have like every international passport you can imagine. And they're both pretty wealthy. Like, Coco is apparently, like, ungodly wealthy, but Casper's not doing too bad either. But they're also intentionally designed to be almost like ghosts. They're very clearly, like, they both have white hair, they both have blue eyes, they're both, like, their skin tone is basically white, like, Paper white, not like white person white. And so they stand out in the crowd. People, re and people do like recognize them and be like, oh, that's Coco Heckmacchiar or that's Casper Heckmacchiar. They're part of HDLI, which is a company they deal arms through. But what that has the effect of doing is it makes both of them outliers, especially Coco. It makes them feel. Like, they don't belong in any setting, so they force themselves into every setting. Like, when, probably, a great kind of, like, pointless scene, not pointless, but it makes sense, 
is this scene when um, Casper is hanging out with his, like, three guards he has, because he only had three that follow him around. Coco had, like, 16 or something. Um, but they're all hanging out in this, like, East Asian, like, low-rent diner, and they're getting great food, and they're having a great time. And Casper feel like, Casper feels in that moment way less guarded and way more, like, casually getting a drink with friends and colleagues of his. In a way that he only feels like again after that scene. He never feels that way before that scene. Like, Pakia always kind of feels the same in everything she's in. But he feels really casual and relaxed and, like, nonchalant to a greater degree after that diner scene. And it's because you saw you saw in that moment what you see in the show all the time with Coco and that like the place they belong is with the guards they've grown up with because you see um you see in flashback that Coco was like grew up with this team of guards and like sure people were added and people died in the course of the job because they're protecting an arms dealer um but to the kind of found family moment that's there that gives it, that makes them belong anywhere they are with their kind of like posse. Which is really, which as a person who is very much born outside of the box, you can listen to the rest of the podcast to find out how. But that really rang true. Like, I, just a quick rundown. I am a biracial childhood brain cancer survive childhood brain cancer survivor who is physically disabled who grew up with a single parent and that means that going through the world who is it, I want to be clear and I want to make this really 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 clear when you're biracial and you're African American and you have a African-American community around you, it's not a big deal. When you're biracial and you have a white community around you, it's really fucking complicated. <laughs> it's not great. Um, but, like... And it's part of the reason why I'm drawn to stories like Jormungan, stories like Hakata Ramen, stories like Black Lagoon, stories like the whole, the, the whole thing. And that's because... These, all the characters in all these stories exist at the very least with one foot outside of the box of society and so can affect it in ways that people on the inside can't. And in this show, even though, like, elements of society... The elements of society that you meet usually do not fare well against, like the international arms dealers with a paramilitary troop protecting them. It's just the way it rolls. And there's also an instance of somebody who had chosen to be outside of the box for a long time, and he, like, engineers a conflict, basically so he can step back into society and live a very relaxing life. And that's an interest... That's what the whole... Um, Japan arc is about actually. And on that note, um, I hope you enjoyed this inaugural episode of Lunchbox Radio Rewind. And if you like this episode, new episodes come out every Thursday and Sunday. Sunday is the like metatextual Sunday edition. That's more about um. That's more about um. Like the industry, fandom, all that stuff. Go check that out. If you haven't watched the thing on my video on Cowboy Bebop yet, I encourage you to go to um, Spotify and watch it. Unfortunately, it's only on Spotify. You should be able to see it for free. Um, but Or listen to it in this feed. And then Thursday shows are more like this. This is a new thing I'm planning on doing, which is Rewind, which is about revisiting shows. Um, but usually it's a new show three out of four weeks of the month. 
on that note, um, I will talk to you on Sunday. Now.